politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Miniman standing at the ready, looking for a guide, looking for a plan to fight again for our life, our liberty, and our property. If this is your goal, this is your place. And this is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today for Friday, September 23rd, a very special show on tap today. We'll be speaking to the wife of a cop, former cop, who is in prison for a 25-year sentence for simply doing his job following protocol in a, a suicide call of a guy who had a gun. While all these federal agents and law enforcement agents violate human rights of people who never committed a crime, those who actually do their jobs, those who actually are patriots, get locked up. We are in a world upside down, inside out, where law enforcement, just like the military, is being used for the exact wrong reason and what it should be used for, it's not. And those who try to fulfill its mission get punished. You and I are the criminals. Cops who try to fight bad guys but uphold civil rights of good guys are the criminals. Those who punish or protect, well, those who punish us and protect bad guys, they are exalted. Now, I know today is going to be a very tough show to stomach but and as this show you know often is and I'll admit that but I want to point you guys to Hosea 14:3 Return O Israel to the Lord your God for you have stumbled in your iniquity take words with yourselves and return to the Lord Say you shall forgive all iniquity and teach us the good way and let us render for bulls, meaning like an offering of sacrifice of bulls, our lips. In other words, rather than a sacrifice, it's literally lip service. But lip service is usually used as a derogatory term. All God expects of us is to return our lips and our hearts to him. What is going on in the world, in society, in our country, in our government is much greater than any political solution could ever fix. All we can do is speak the truth, draw attention to the injustice, put forward a path, and I believe that if enough people would do it, in the merit of that, God would respond. God doesn't need us to sacrifice the bulls. He wants our lips. But what we have from our colleagues is not even the lip service. They won't even draw attention to this. They'll still dance around like none of this is happening. It's funny. Kevin McCarthy put out this commitment to America. It's a vapid document with nothing in it. Literally says a bunch of nothing. And maybe next week I'll break it down. I'll write a column of the absurdities of it, how it perfectly pretends to be on our side, but omits COVID fascism, omits critical race theory, omits transgenderism, except save female sports, omits the persecution of January 6th and, and broadly what that represents, all the things that matter, it, it omits. But it's full of fund the police, fund the police, back the blue. And it's bizarre. That's not what it's about. It's not about funding the military, funding the police. It's that the police and the military are being used for what it shouldn't be used as, 
and what it is being used, the people are being persecuted. It's the policies that matter. And as it relates to crime, it's not the police. They, they say they're going to hire another 200,000 police. I could hire another trillion police. But if the justice system is going to release them because we believe that we have an over-incarceration problem, as the GOP espoused last decade and really still believes, just like they believe we don't have enough immigration, just like they believe in global warming, but then they don't like that the Democrats take it a little bit too far, well, whoop-de-doo, the ship has already sailed on those issues. So as it relates to crime, Republicans joined in with this, oh, an over-incarceration problem. That's the issue. And then moreover, if we're going to use the police to enforce tyranny, and then the police that are put into crazy situations, we're going to second-guess split-second decisions and lock them up, punish them more than we punish other manslaughter cases, then you're just going to be left with a police force full of Karen cops and military full of transgender and that's exactly the way they want it so by funding more you're funding the same bad policies it's not the issue we'll take down kevin mccarthy's whole thing but i just want to give to you before we bring on the special guest which is going to be the main part of today's show i just want to go over a couple of news stories federal prosecutors on thursday agreed to dismiss a criminal case against a massachusetts state judge if you remember trump's ice and doj had this woman charged because she helped uh, have an illegal alien escape arrest in her court. And she was aiding and abetting violating federal law. And now they're vitiating that. So, again, that's the lesson to the judicial system. If you coddle, and these were criminal aliens. These weren't just like run-of-the-mill illegal aliens. If you coddle bad guys, you're, you're good to go. If you go after good guys, you're good to go. That is what is being incentivized. So if you fund it, you're going to fund more of that without changing the policies. Just like if you fund today's military without uh, fixing the policies, you're going to make it worse. But that's the GOP line. By the way, there's what to learn from that judge. If they could thwart the the federal agents where the feds have legitimate um, control in in, in a – towards achieving the objective of protecting criminal alien sex offenders, then you better believe that our state judges and prosecutors and police should work to protect Americans, innocent Americans, from federal persecution. Then there's another story. I just just kind of to build up this, this case we're going to talk about with uh, Officer Ben Darby in Huntsville, Alabama. The FBI whistleblower, thank God we finally have one. Hopefully this will lead to more. But where are these guys? Special Agent Steve Friend, he's the one who went to Grassley's office and Jim Jordan. And he basically, he worked out of the field office in Daytona Beach. This is Florida. He was a SWAT member, so he was a real you know, trained guy. And he basically noted, confirmed our worst suspicions, that January 6th has become an institution, that they took him off, uh, you know, investigating sex offenders to make everything about finding conservative extremists. And this phantom notion that, you know, everyone's a violent extremist. 
And basically, he uh, outlined that the D.C. field office is manipulating FBI case management protocol and farming out J6 cases to every other field office to give the impression that there's this widespread right-wing domestic violence. Um, FBI domestic terrorism cases are being opened on innocent American citizens who are nowhere near the Capitol based on anonymous tips to the FBI hotline or from Facebook spying. Um, these tips are turned into investigative tools called Guardians after the FBI software that collates them. The FBI has post facto designated a grassy area outside the Capitol as a restricted zone when it, when it wasn't restricted as of January 6th in order to widen the net of prosecutions. The FBI intends to prosecute everyone, even peripherally associated with J6, and another wave of J6 subjects are about to be referred to the FBI's Daytona Beach Resident Agency for Investigation. And arrest. The Jacksonville area was inundated in, with Guardian notifications, and FBI agents were dispatched to conduct surveillance and knock on people's doors, including people who had not been at the Capitol at all, or some were at the Trump rally, but they never went inside the Capitol. And he was punished for not going along with it. There were reprisals everywhere. Um, agents were used as pawns. But somehow those FBI agents will escape any justice for violating, literally violating constitutional rights. This is something that cannot wait till 2025 to deal with. And, and, and the GOP, they're like, the only mention was politicization of the DOJ. They didn't mention defunding or cutting funding for these agencies. And they didn't mention persecution. It's not, it's not politicization i mean it's always been political that that's old news it's persecution it's the fourth reich this is the nightmare scenario from which america was created to escape from and yet nothing a world upside down and then obviously as we well know this is really a blood libel not only is the right wing violence not occurring but in fact the violence is on the left and by projecting it wrongly on the right like a blood libel you stir up violence as a self-fulfilling prophecy against them obviously um most of you are aware by now kaylor ellingson a name that the media won't mention an 18 year old boy in north dakota who was mowed down in a car deliberately killed by um uh, allegedly by this guy uh, branded shannon brandon because he and he admitted that he targeted him because he was a Republican extremist. Okay, imagine a 41-year-old guy. Can you imagine if a right-wing guy would run over an 18-year-old Democrat activist? Not only would that guy be held without bail in solitary confinement, and you know, they'd pursue the death penalty, but anyone on his like cell phone contacts would be thrown in jail. This guy was released on a 50,000 bond. He's been charged with vehicular homicide. But vehicular homicide, I mean, I'm telling you, it's going to wind up getting, it's not just the release pre-trial, but he'll wind up getting like 10 years or something for that. When really, that's just straight up, in my mind, capital murder. Just because you used a car and not your hands, it shouldn't change that. But there's going to be so many ways to to gum up the works, to prove, well, maybe he didn't really mean it, and he didn't target him, he didn't see him. 
even though it's abundantly clear we have so much technology, see that technology we have to surveil people and prove evidence, it's always used against our people, but it's never used against the bad guys. And that, my friends, is a good introduction to the case of Ben Darby. Now, to introduce the case of Ben Darby and obviously the guest of honor today, his wife, Keelan, I want to make something very clear here. To understand the depth of depravity that we're living through, the injustice that we're living through, this two-tier justice system that everyone's starting to understand, it's not just the fact that hey, you know, they have a specific agenda and they're willing to achieve it um, by hook or by crook. They're going to make sure their people are exonerated and our people are locked up. It's that the very tools that are used to get their people out of jail are used to lock up people who don't belong in jail. It's, It's truly unbelievable. We've been talking about for years how there are so many impediments to evidentiary standards to nail a conviction how you could have someone that clearly murdered someone in cold blood, okay? Um, And certainly we have a lot of technology, we have DNA, we have cameras at every square inch of the globe, and yet these people always find ways to get off, find ways to force uh, prosecutors to take plea deals, and this is how you constantly have people out with huge rap sheets that were barely in prison and they're out to murder someone and rape someone and, you know, kind of the typical New York subway attacker. When you see those New York Post articles about the guy at 100 arrests and a rap sheet yay long, this is why they're always able to get out. Yet somehow, somehow when it comes to locking up people who shouldn't be locked up, boy, do those wheels of justice churn in a way that is such a juggernaut. It's like nothing seems to work against it. It seems like when they want their man, they get their man. And... It almost does seem like it's by design that they want to make it very clear to cops that we do not want you to do certain things. Eventually, in my view, we're, we're going to have a police system that's designed to enforce things like COVID, designed to go after people for political crimes, that they will be rewarded for doing that. But they're clearly getting disincentives to aggressively approach a dangerous situation, put themselves into you know, a harmful situation that could potentially save lives. And two other things before we introduce the case. Number one, just the society we're living in. We've had on uh, Sheriff uh, Lamb, Mark Lamb from Pinal County, Arizona before, and he he's noted how he has never seen so much volatility. People that are suicidal, people that are that turn violent very quickly. So they'll go down to a domestic situation, and within a minute or two, it goes gets violent. What we, particularly for COVID, we've been throwing out a lot of statistics about mental health problems, about suicide, depression. Now, imagine being a beat cop in this environment. Oh, and by the way, drugs are just like up the wazoo. The drugs we have today are nothing like 10, 20 years ago in terms of the lethality, the danger, the scope of it, You know, the ubiquitous nature of how many people are on it. Um, you're called down to a volatile situation. This is what you're go. This is what you're experiencing. You're always within a half a second of you being killed. So you're gonna have to make split second decisions. And 
more often than not, cops err on the side of caution. And whenever you hear these stories every day, this cop is dead at 27 years old, yada, yada. Often, it's because they hesitated, but you, you, you never know about that. You'll only hear the cases where they didn't hesitate, and often it was like, hey, maybe in retrospect, maybe they didn't have to use that force in hindsight, but you wouldn't have known that at the time, and you couldn't have known that, and the policies that are in place to guide police to draw their weapons and point them and shoot based on certain circumstances on net are worthy because... They're designed to save those lives. And that, and with that background, oh, and one more thing, COVID, COVID. So remember how many violent criminals are on the streets, not just let out, but weren't initially incarcerated because they were like, ah, we don't have room. We don't have a system. We shut down the judicial system. Well, when it came to locking up the people that shouldn't be locked up, they used COVID the other way. So we talked about the case of Vicki White before. Um, in Minnesota, she was locked up for opening her business. She was put into solitary confinement for 14 days. Why? Well, they said COVID quarantine. Well, COVID quarantine was used as an impetus, as a pretext to let out violent criminals. But when it came to people who should never have even been locked up, they went the other direction and said, hey, we're going to go more strict on you. She was put into solitary confinement. So in this case, we had a rushed trial that largely was because of COVID shut down the normal judicial norms and created a very rushed situation where a lot of evidence wasn't admissible. Most people weren't there in person. And it totally created an unfair trial that led to this man being sentenced to 25 years, 25 years. Uh, you know, I think most people in this audience would agree that even in the worst look of Derek Chauvin, at a minimum, he didn't get a fair trial. He was sentenced to 20 years. This was 25 years. Briefly, before, before we bring on his wife, Keelan, just to tee it up, April 3rd, 2018, um, Ben gets a call across the radio of a man call, who called 911 because he was threatening to kill himself, that he had a gun out, pointing it at his head. Um, two other officers showed up first, but then he wound up coming. He took the call. He had the right to take the call. You know, again, in this society, that is a very dangerous call because a lot of suicide calls are really suicide homicide. Sometimes they're only homicide, um, especially when you know from day one the guy has a gun and he's pointing it at his head. He was trained, and this is still the uh, protocol to this day, that if someone already has a gun in that scenario – you don't walk into it. You call the guy out. So you could be behind your cop car, behind cover, and you have your gun drawn. The two cops who responded first did not follow the protocol, and they wrongly used what we would roughly say is underwhelming force, but it's, it's a little bit different situation. But they didn't draw their guns on the person, and they came in. They came in to the house where the guy was. Um, ben comes in. Now he has to rectify the situation. Holy smokes. They're in there already. The guy has a gun. He comes in, draws his shotgun, trains it on the guy. And again, he had the right to do that. That is the right scenario. Now, the female, there was a male and female officer there. The female officer who wound up testifying against Ben claimed she was de-escalating. She was working with the guy, didn't need Ben, but it doesn't matter. Ben was called as backup. He had the right to come in. He had the right procedure trained it on him, dropped the weapon, dropped the weapon, said it seven times. He refused to drop. According to Ben's story, 
he did make some sort of movement or perceived movement towards him. Classic case, he fired, killed the suspect in this case or the person who called them out, um, who was Jeffrey Parker. And um, that's the story. Now, classic case where, you know, it's a shame what happened, but Ben was following procedure. He was cleared by internal review of the Huntsville police. The police chief backed him. The mayor backed him. The city council backed him. They even funded his defense. Um, You know, there's nothing to talk about. Somehow, the Madison County District Attorney, Robert Broussard, B-R-O-U-S-S-A-R-D, look him up, somehow had a vendetta, wanted to prosecute him, offered him a plea deal um, that required no jail time, but he didn't want to take it because he didn't do anything wrong. Um, In fact, it was the other cops who had to undergo training because they didn't follow protocol. He did. Um, He had the right to be there. He had the right to draw the weapon. And once you don't follow the command, I want to be very clear. I don't think if you don't listen to a cop pushing you around, the guy deserves to kill you, you know, because we have other these other Karen cops doing wrong things. But if you have a weapon and he tells you to drop it, you got to drop it. Um, And he didn't. It's open and shut. Even in the worst case scenario, if you believe the fact pattern of the prosecution and this Karen cop, which we'll talk about, at best you would have a civil case. At best you'd say dismiss the guy. But a criminal charge for manslaughter and sentenced to 25 freaking years. He began serving about a year ago. He's been there 13 months another 24 years on the clock. How about it? I can't believe I never heard of this case before a month ago. With us today is his wife, Keelan Darby, who herself is also in law enforcement in Alabama. Keelan, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your story. Thank you for giving me the time to uh, speak about it because so many people don't know. Um, we were held under a gag order. Now, I, I chewed up the clock with me talking, and I want you to give your story now, but I wanted people to at least have a background. Um, before we get into the details, this is like the worst case I've ever heard, and I've dealt with outrageous cases. I've pushed you off for about a month because, honestly, I've been very busy, and I just didn't have the heart for this. I just I, I don't – I just can't deal with this anymore. There's just so much outrage. Um I haven't. I myself haven't heard of this until recently. Why? Why? Why is this not the biggest case in Alabama? And how is this happening in a state like Alabama? Yeah. So again, this all happened in 2018. Uh, ben was charged uh, six months later, August of 2018, and immediately after he was charged, the city of Huntsville, including the uh, chief of police, the mayor, and the city council, all supported Ben and publicly held press conferences stating that. Uh, ben is not a murderer. The chief did say that in his press conference, and that was supported by the mayor and the city council. The district attorney then got up and had his own press conference and said, no, Ben is a murderer. And so the judge over the case, her name is Donna Pate, she uh, declared a gag order. So she didn't allow anyone involved in the case to speak about the case with the threat of going to jail for that. So I couldn't talk about my case my husband's case, mm. rather, in fear of going to jail for trying to support him and have others understand that he's not a murderer. He did exactly as we're trained in law enforcement to do. Um, as far as it, how is this happening in Alabama, this is the first time 
that a law enforcement officer has been convicted of a criminal offense and thrown into prison for it. Um, I don't understand it other than it's a personal issue with the district attorney's office and being that's proven over cases that they, that they've had after Ben's um, with officer involved shootings that were justified, that were very similar in nature to Ben's call. And those guys didn't get prosecuted, which they shouldn't have. And I'm not asking for that, but what do you have against Ben Darby? So the question is, and, and this is what befuddled me, is that typically you have a case in California where the entire political system, the jury pool, is rigged against a person. Sometimes it's racially charged. In this case, it wasn't. The individual was white, and you know, but you know, both you know, all the people at play were were white, so you didn't have the, kind of that element to it. Um, you have a sympathetic, you know, police department, local officials. Um, what how does how does this how does this get off the ground and how do you have a sentence that is worse than Derek Chauvin's yeah so it, it all started because of from what i've been told the district attorney's office and Huntsville police department don't get along um i don't work in that county and i don't work for that department so i can't really speak to that but from what I've been told, that's what the issue is. And I, I like to agree with it just based off of other cases that have come out from officer-involved shootings from there. Um, you know, originally, the lawyers from the district attorney's office had said, if you char- if you fire him, they told us to the chief, if you fire him, we won't charge him. Just get rid of him. We won't press charges. And uh, Chief McMurray said, no, he didn't commit murder. I'm not going to charge him. He followed his training as we train him in the state academy um, per state standard and per the national standard. That's also taught through the FBI. Um, it's a national standard that officers call people out. Um, and if a gun is in play or some type of weapon is in play and you feel like you are in a uh, threat of your life being taken or a standby uh, bystander as well, you have the right to defend yourself and that person and use force. Um, not taking an action, so not dropping the gun like Parker was commanded to do seven times, is an action. You are not acting is acting. And that was um, not yeah. that was not portrayed to the jury correctly. Um, so he, he gets charged in August, in January of 2021, we were given a plea deal and it took that long because of uh, COVID happened and the court shut down. So we're in, in limbo waiting for a trial to come about. Uh, January of 2021, the district attorney's office offered Ben aggravated manslaughter, no prison time, five years probation. So he would never be taken into custody. He would just be on probation for five years. And Ben said, no, I didn't commit manslaughter. I didn't commit murder. I want my day in court. And so we went to court uh, May 3rd, 2021. We were there for a week. Um, so many issues happened during court. Uh, one being the court was closed to the public, which is a constitutional violation of his right to a public trial. I myself was not allowed to be there with him. So we were, uh, mm. we were put into this small room with a TV monitor, and we were able to watch some of the trial 
by a Zoom feed. And I say some of the trial because when certain issues came up, the judge would just turn the TV off. So the screen would go black, the audio would be cut, and the people that were in that room had no idea what was going on. That's an issue. Uh, after talking with Ben on breaks, he said that during those times, a neighbor who had came to testify in defense of Ben due to knowing the relationship of Parker and police, how Parker hated cops, he stated to this neighbor multiple times how he didn't like police officers, how he had a plan to lure a police officer into his home and to kill them, uh, which he, he tried mm. to do that that day and was unsuccessful. But um, he had a plan to kill cops. He had a vendetta against police. And he, this neighbor, was not allowed to testify to that. Um, a training instructor from Huntsville Police Department who taught Ben's Academy class on action versus reaction, which is the actor will be able to commit whatever they're going to act upon faster than you're going to be able to react to it. Um, and so in that case, if I'm going to shoot you, I'm going to be able to shoot you or get a shot off before you're able to react because I know when I'm going to shoot you. You don't know when I'm going to do it. And so mm. uh, Officer Moore, was he went up to go testify. I saw him get on the stand, and I knew his backstory because he was involved in the officer-involved shooting that dealt from action versus reaction. He had an individual who had a long gun pointed at the ground, and Officer Moore had his uh, rifle trained on the individual waiting for movement. He waited too long, and the individual was able to flick his wrist. Officer Moore wasn't able to see that clearly, and he got shot in the face with birdshot. Thankfully, he survived that encounter, mm. but it's that quick, and people don't understand that. You yeah. know, we're trained. We have the authority to do certain things, and if you are told to drop a weapon and you don't do it, whatever happens to you after that is on you. That's not on the officer. And so uh, Officer Moore was not allowed to testify towards yes. that training. And he didn't just train Ben's Academy, but he trained several Academy classes after Ben. So several Huntsville police officers yes. went through that direct testimony of Officer Moore and how he had to go through that incident. Um, the jury wasn't allowed to hear that Ben was cleared 100% by the uh, incident review board that looked over his case. Part of that incident. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. The, the jury wasn't allowed to hear that there was a review board that he was cleared? Yeah, yes. Wait, which part didn't they, they didn't hear? They didn't hear that he was cleared. They didn't wow. hear. Okay, that see, again, that, that's a big thing because you could have a lawsuit against the city, a civil suit against the police department. I don't like your training. I think you're too trigger happy. I don't But But because I, I, I read there's one juror. And you could find it online. There's one juror who kind of said his side of the story, why, you know, why they they uh, voted to convict him. And what I was struck by is that they were making fun out of like, oh, and their whole defense was like the police department. This is this is their training. But that's everything, because even if you disagree with it, it's not murder. Right. Um, you could say policy wise, you want to change that. And you could have maybe a civil suit, possibly that that's not murder, even if they're fact, even if we say believe the female officer and the prosecution that you know he didn't flinch towards him and he was too you know ben was too aggressive and this female officer was you know really talking him down and he was just kind of a lost soul it was a pure kind of you know depression and she was about to really make it good and then ben just barges in and you know messes it up i'm saying even if that were true 
from what he knew, he had the right to do that because that was the right decision at the right time. And it was an unfortunate ending because the guy didn't listen. It's not murder. But I want to take this a step further. Even if that were the case, that they shouldn't have convicted, but that wasn't what was presented to the jury, and they didn't present that he was cleared. But I want you to go back to what you mentioned, this witness that wasn't allowed to testify that seems to blow it wide open that does seem to um, – I mean, because typically you have to prove beyond a reasonable shadow of doubt that that the prosecution is right, that, you know, the fact pattern is not like what the defendant says. But here it shows beyond a reasonable doubt it's really the other way that it wasn't even an unfortunate incident. He actually wanted it to end that way. Go into a little bit more depth about the nature of this guy. Of the neighbor or of the of Parker? I'm sorry. The neighbor and at, at least what he's alleging um, you know, that the, this Parker guy, what was he was about and why that gives color to what actually occurred and lends credence more to Ben's instinct that he did feel it was a threat and it wasn't just kind of a, you know, messed up soul that really wasn't going to harm someone and needed more of a de-escalation situation. Yeah, so um, the the neighbor um, had lived in that on that street, was neighbors with uh, Mr. Parker. And um, he came forward after all this happened because he didn't know, you know, the details of what happened that day, you know, that Parker was shot, why he was shot. And when when charges came up for Ben and it it came forward that Ben was um, arrested on a murder warrant, he came forward and said, hey, you guys need to know what's going, what really is going on. And so he um, spoke with our attorneys about how he had several conversations with Parker uh, Parker would approach him while he was cutting his yard and just talk about he, how he hated police, you know, how he did have a plan to get a cop in his house and to kill him. And um, if you look at Parker's criminal history, um, he does have a history of drug abuse and petty theft. And he was um, incarcerated in the same facility that Ben is currently serving his time in. And while he was there, um, wow. He became part of a white supremacy group. Um, during the trial, we had uh, we had a expert witness come in and talk about tattoos that were on Parker's body, one of them being a white supremacist tattoo that he had on his chest. Um, you know, and white supremacists don't like cops. So, of course, Ben doesn't know that because he can't see any of that, you know, during the actual encounter. But that, that gives credence to why wasn't the neighbor allowed to testify. Um, he got on the stand yes. and uh, we were able to see him get on the stand. We started, he started getting questioned and he was asked, what did, how did Parker tell you he felt about police? And the neighbor was able to say, Parker told me he hated the police. And then the prosecution objection, objection. That's hearsay. That's hearsay. He can't say that. It's not hearsay because it's a direct account of a conversation that like I'm having with you right now. If one of the listeners would go and talk about this conversation that I'm having with you, that would be hearsay. But if you or I were to talk about this conversation, it's not hearsay because we're involved in the conversation. And so the judge said, yeah, you can't talk about that. Um, And she turned, and she turned off the TV. And so of course, and that individual is still willing to testify, still willing to testify. So he was able to talk to the court record. So it's, all, it's on the record, which is good for us now because we're appealing this. 
but the 12 people who were going to make the decision as to whether or not my husband is guilty of murder was not allowed to hear that testimony. Wow. And, and, and again, it's not just a character, oh, the guy was a dirtbag, the guy was a white supremacist, so what? You don't have the right to kill him. But it speaks to the actual point here in that, you know, the jury was led to believe um, and I want to get into this female officer a little bit because, you know, this seems to be how, you know, because otherwise, how did this even get off the ground? If everyone's united, he was cleared. Right. But this one officer, her, the question is, which narrative was it? Was it, you know, Ben's narrative? You come in there. It's extremely volatile. You're doing what you're trained. Um, he you tell him to drop it. He doesn't drop it. And then you feel like he's, he's saying he did flinch towards him. And that's a classic trigger that you're allowed to shoot. Um, versus what she was saying, no, I mean, you know, this guy was just kind of a lost soul, and she was, you know, well on her way to talking him down, and Ben just comes in there and just ruins the whole thing, and just almost like he wanted to murder him from day one. If you have someone saying, the guy literally said, I want to lure police into a murder-suicide, then that really, you know, that that's a big, big deal, and, you know, if nothing else, the notion that... um you know, that the attorney general wouldn't immediately try to overturn this is a little bit bizarre just based on that alone. Um, but but I want to go a step back um, just legally because I think this is very important. It's a philosophy that I've been espousing with police. And, and again, I mean, my audience knows I've soured on some police, so I'm not like a a back the blue, I'm a back the constitution right. guy. But what here's what I do believe. I don't believe cops could just push people around. But what I do believe is that when you have a lawful contact, meaning uh, a civilian can't just involve themselves in something. So if I see someone's like suicidal in their house, I can't walk in the door and then train my gun on him, tell him to drop it. And if he doesn't drop it, say, well, I, I feared for my life and I killed him because then, you know, because you don't have a right to initiate that. But in this case, the difference between a cop and a civilian is not that a cop has the right to commit murder. If a cop off duty or whatever just comes and decides to kill someone, he's charged the same way. But if you get a call, to a volatile situation, the guy has a gun. And then they say it was just a flare gun in the end, but everyone agrees that was not known at the time, and you wouldn't have known right. that. Um, and you get called on the scene in the house with a gun, which the police, the original cops screwed up the situation. And so you tr you have the right to train it on him. That is the training. You tell him to drop it, and he doesn't drop it. Even if you believe the fact pattern of the prosecution and that female officer that he he messed it up, he wasn't in danger, it doesn't matter. It's not murder if you shoot. Um that that wasn't given over. Is that is that correct that it was treated more like, well, was it self-defense? Did you feel your life was in danger? Well, we the jury don't really believe your life was in danger, so it wasn't self-defense, it's murder. That's a standard for someone who didn't have the right to engage to that right. point. So Parker called. Parker called nine one one and said I have a gun to my head. I'm fixing to blow, blow out my blow my brains out. The front door's open. He called dispatch, and you can hear on the 911 call. Dispatch says, "Please stay on the line. We want to help you." And he says, "No thanks," and hangs up. So he knew. He already knew. He wanted to die that day, because she tried. She the first time that he was given help from the dispatcher, he said, "No thanks." So yes. 
Wait, wait, wait. What, what, no thanks to what? what? Because the dispatcher said, stay on the line. We want to help you. And he said, no thanks. and hung up. Hmm. Okay, so his first sign of help from dispatch to talk him, try and talk him down until officers got there, he hung up and said no thanks. Dispatch tried multiple times to reconnect with him, and he did not answer his phone. So then Pegues and Beckles get there, the first two officers. They wrongfully go in the house. Pegues is standing. So Pegues and Beckles, Beckles is the... Is the second officer. Is the male, the male officer... officer. And Pegues is the female officer. Correct. Okay, so let's let's go let's go through that now. I think now is a good time to go through that because, again, um, I do believe that this is what swayed the jury and the judge. It was it was you know one of the officers' testimonies. So so let's go through what happened there. So they they get the original call and they um, they head that way. Everyone on everyone according to records, everyone on shift that day was tied up on a call. Dispatch asked for officers to expedite for an urgent call, and they expedited and went to the call. Um, Officer Beckles, after reading and hearing the call notes, got on the radio and said, if anyone else is available, please be en route. So Ben was available. He was headed to um, the station to take care of some uh, administrative work, and he said, that can wait. I'll go and help them. So that's how Ben got roped into this. Um, the original two officers, Piggies and Beckles, get there, wrongfully go up to the house and go inside the house. Um, Piggies is standing. How long were they there before Ben got in? Um, maybe a minute or two. It wasn't. It wasn't oh, wow. that. Okay, it so wasn't that much. Quick. It wasn't. There wasn't a lot of time between them getting there and him. So it's not like they were there for half an no. hour de-escalating and the situation was no, fine. It was, I, I didn't know that. That's pretty yeah, it was quick. definitely less than five minutes. I don't have the actual the actual time, but it's definitely uh-huh. less than five minutes. Keith enters the house and is standing between dead space and Parker. There's nothing between her other than a couch. A couch is not going to stop a bullet round if he decides to shoot at her. Okay? So she is in an immediate threat, an immediate danger zone. She has her gun out, pointing it to the ground, and she's talking with her other hand, asking Parker why he's, why does he want to kill himself today? Um, it's not worth it. Don't do it. Um, but she's not protecting herself, and she's not able to protect herself because she, there's nothing in between the two of them to protect her. Beckles is standing in the doorway, so he's boxed in by the door frame. His gun is out, also pointed at the ground, and he's not saying anything. Piggies is doing all the talking. Ben gets there, grabs his shotgun, thinking they're going to have a perimeter already set up, which is how we're trained in the state of Alabama and nationwide. To his surprise, he doesn't see his officers, so he runs up to the house thinking, worst-case scenario, and to his surprise, he sees Piggies in the house and Beckles outside. As soon as Ben gets there, he says, point your gun at him. He can shoot you. Um, and then he says, drop the gun. He can't see. He's outside still. He can't see where Parker is. All he can see is. No, but I think he used the F word one time, so he's a murderer. <laughs> he did. Yeah. and that- Just kidding. I mean, that's what one of the jurors said, literally. And 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 the... The and Parker never cursed. Parker, no. So just for the record, I just want people yeah, to know. Okay. okay. Yeah, he did. He did. He did say, <laughs> "Point your effing gun at him. He can shoot you." And okay. um, then he says, "Drop the gun." To from outside, he just shouts it in there uh, to Parker, so that if there wasn't, if it wasn't made known, yeah, you need to put your gun down. Um, 
Tigis is failing to communicate with him. She doesn't raise her gun for uh, Parker. Ben steps in the house, points his shotgun at Parker, and says, drop your gun. At this point, you can see Tigis bring her gun up on target, and then she shifts her body weight towards Ben. Her gun moves off target. She says, he's not going to shoot us. And then she puts her gun back down. Ben tells him again. Mm. Um, and when Ben said that the first time when he entered the house and said, drop your gun, Parker said, no, I'm not going to do it. This entire time, the gun's at Parker's head, you know, indexed towards his temple. Ben says, I'm not going to tell you he again. Says, I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. Okay. And, and what about Beckles? Beckles is just hanging out. Um, he's online with Ben, but his gun is still at low ready. It's not up on target. Okay. Ben tells him again. Okay. So they both had it low ready. Um, and they both had handguns at low ready. Right. Um, Ben, before he came in, went into the trunk of his car, got the shotgun, had it trained on right. him. Thinking they were going to um, tap the perimeter. That's why he had his shotgun. Cause a lot of people are like, Oh, well he wanted to kill him cause he grabbed a shotgun. No, based off our training, you should have a long gun on a perimeter. And because unbeknownst to him, the perimeter wasn't set up. He had his shotgun when he entered the house. Yeah. And, 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 and that that's a big point because the I, I it's it's the use of the f word it's the big the big gun but that's a big point uh, that's an important point that um why he didn't use a handgun is because yeah they thought it would be an out an out outdoor scenario um with a perimeter and and again I mean you know what people need to understand in retrospect you're always like oh yeah, it wasn't a big deal. But when you get called down, a guy has a gun and he's threatening to kill himself, made a 911 call, the gun is out. Yeah, you're going to come in in beast mode. Right. You're going to, you know, you might use the F word. Like, you know, that doesn't that doesn't change the, the scenario. But because I'm just showing people how I think the jury really, you know, how, how a prosecutor is able to take a couple of things and create a fact pattern that just doesn't comport with reality. And, and, uh, it's, it's very scary, but, um, anyway, so he tells him seven times, drop it, drop it. Um, she says, Hey, you know, he's not, not really going to shoot mm -hmm. us. Um, then what happened? And so, uh, you know, Ben said it the final time he said, uh, drop the gun. I'm not going to tell you again, drop it. And, um, at that point, Parker shrugged his shoulders and started to move the gun towards Ben. Ben uh, shot his weapon in fear of being shot at or the other officers to be shot at. And um, mm -hmm. he went up, uh, cleared the room up to where Parker was at, removed the gun from his hand, put him in handcuffs, as we're trained to do, because people are like, he, uh, they criticize him for putting him in handcuffs. That's basic training. That's yeah, basic I saw that. training. Um, put him in handcuffs, mm -hmm. moved the weapon away from Parker. Um, it was later found out to be a, a, a flare gun. It was painted black. So on first look, you're, you're not going to know that. But the gun, the flare gun was also um, loaded with compromised buckshot. So he could have shot. And when he was moving that gun forward, if he were to shoot them, they all would have gotten hit because of the, the short length of that barrel. They all would have yep. gotten sprayed by that. So that all happened in April of 2018. That's basically the incident. That is what happened. That's what happened. And I think, you know, from there, I, I've never heard a case like this. Oh, and let me say. Um, certainly where. Let me say, yeah. I'm sorry, because we had touched on this and then gone into the incident. Um, you had brought up how uh, 
a civilian, if a civilian were to do that, if a normal average Joe were to do that, yes, it would be murder. But for an officer to do that, it's not. And that's exactly what the prosecution claimed Ben to be. Ben was just a civilian. He was a cowboy cop, to quote uh, Prosecutor Gann. Ben was a cowboy cop who ran into the house with a shotgun and blew that guy's brains out. Um, yeah. Quite frankly, no, and, there's and, a difference. And by listening to the, yeah. There's a difference. Ben is a trained yeah, no, law continue. enforcement officer who's gone under scenarios very similar to the situation he was put in per Huntsville Police Department training and the FBI officer survival school, something that we both went through. Um, it's a shoot scenario. You cannot, you cannot allow someone to point a weapon at you and just take it because every cop goes to shift and has the mindset of, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get home tonight. I'm not going to take a bullet for, for a bad guy. And yep. that's what Ben did. Ben went home that night. And you get a nine one one call. This is the difference. You get called to right. It. It's not like he was so. In it's not something you could evade. On his off day, heard it over the radio and said, "Oh, I'm going to go to that and walk in in plain clothes." He was a uniformed police officer in a Huntsville police officer uniform on duty that day, working for the department for his regular shift. So. I, I couldn't figure out what happened here because, again, the prosecutor, there's something funny with him, but I think technically he is a Republican. I mean, he's not a Soros guy. The jury, you cannot prove, was liberal or into BLM. It wasn't, you know, a racial thing. If anything, ironically, you guys are alleging the guy might have been a white supremacist, uh, this Parker guy. And, you know, it's, you know, you have a very strong law and order attorney general. Um, who is, I guess, looking at the appeal now, and we'll see what happens there. Obviously, we would, you know, given the facts, we would like for him to immediately drop it to overturn the conviction, which I think he has the power to do. The governor just, you know, if people are wondering, Kay Ivey uh, in Alabama, the governor no longer has the power to pardon. Obviously, that would be a no-brainer here. Um, but let's go over, so um, the female officer so I think that's really what got this in motion. Um, I don't I don't understand why the prosecutor would have pursued this to begin with, but in terms of the jury and somewhat the judge, it appears that her testimony is really what mattered because the way it was portrayed is that, look, you know, if you're worried about someone being, you know, her someone's life being in danger, it would have been her life, mm -hmm. and she felt that it was fine, and he came in and messed it up and needlessly murdered someone. So she testified for the prosecution. It's a very important detail here. Describe a little bit her testimony, what you think is going on there, because that seems to be very unique in these cases. And then what about Beckel, the other cop, the male cop who was there, what you know, his testimony. How did that play out? So Officer Pergis took the stand, and she was the she was prosecution's main witness, uh, key witness for this case. And she took the stand and testified that she was never in danger, that she had control of the situation, and that Ben only made the situation worse um, because he, quote unquote, barged in and overtook what she was doing. Um, if you watch her body camera footage and every law enforcement officer can relate to this, she's not communicating clearly. She's stuttering. Obviously it's, it's a tense situation. So I get that. You're not going to be able to clear, 
you're not going to be able to clearly speak as if we're just talking right now, but you have to have control over what's going on. And she lacked that completely. She further stepped deeper into the house from where she was. And that's a silent call for your other officers to help you out. If you're not able to build a rapport and be able to yep. communicate clearly. Um, and I know this because I'm, I'm a cop. I see this every day on, on shift with um, my guys and the calls that I go on. If they're having an issue, they'll step in or they'll move a little bit away to invite you in to take over because whatever they're trying to accomplish, they're not accomplishing. And she had done that. When she did that, Ben and Beckles both entered and Ben took over. Mm. Um, uh, Officer Pugese was uh, prepped for this trial for 40 hours. They took a 40-hour work week and prepped her for trial. Um, They tried to have Beckles also Mm. speak against Ben. And when Beckles took the stand, the prosecution and Beckles basically got into a fight on the stand in open court about what happened because Beckles wouldn't stay, but Beckles wouldn't go against Ben. Beckles testified that he knew that it was an end up in a shooting. Either they were going to shoot him and he'd be killed or uh, Parker was going to shoot at them. That's a huge detail. Yeah. Or Parker was going. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's an important thing because Officer Pegues was seemed to be saying, look, you know, this was just kind of like a domestic situation, almost like a social work call. We were well on our way to de-escalating, you know, and, and this guy just barges in and kills the guy. But you're saying, well, you know, okay, so you have one against one. The other officer, you're saying, was saying like, no, this was going to end with someone getting yeah. killed. Beckles testified that he knew someone was going to get killed that day. And so, um, you know, of course, prosecution didn't like that because Beckles was supposed to be on their side. He was their witness. And so Beckles testified um, that way in support of in support of Ben, stating how yes, it was going to end up in a shooting that day, and we ended up taking the shot, namely Ben did. Um, um, Beckles testified that he was going to shoot, but Ben's shot broke before his did. Um, there's no way of proving that because you. So can't he see well, that. wait. So he's saying he already. You saying he were he was originally at the low ready. Mm-hmm. You're saying he testified that eventually he brought it up. Um, side alignment and and had his f- finger on yes, the slack. He testified too. You can't see any of that in the body camera footage from where his body camera is positioned to the view, mm. but that's what he testified. So either way, he wow. knew a shot was going to go that day. And Ben did end up shooting him, shooting Parker. So um, Piggy's later, um, you know, we cross-examined her and she later came out and said, yeah, I guess I was in danger, you know, but that didn't matter because the jury and the prosecution, prosecution pushed, no, she was right. She had it under control. She knew what she was doing. You have to look at it through her point of view, which is wrong. An officer's force is is supposed to be viewed as another reasonable police officer would with the same training and with yes. the same experience. It- and that's important. In other words, again, a civilian situation. I barge in as a civilian and I say, I think this guy, this guy looks suspicious and is harassing, you know, mm-hmm. another civilian. I'm going to save the person. But, you know, you know, show me your hands. Show me your hands. Oh, you don't show up. I shoot you. And I say, look, I was self-defense. They were going to kill that person. And then that person says, look, look, I, my life was never in danger. That's the way they treated it. Whereas here, whether she was right or not, what she perceived this is what he perceived, and that is in accordance with 
standard training, and Beckles seemed to uh, corroborate that. What about in terms of the actual question of did he appear to flinch or move the gun or his arm you know, away from that stationary position or or the position it was already in? Um, I'm assuming Pegues contradicted that, and she says, no, he didn't move. What about what about Beckles? I honestly don't recall what Beckles had testified to. Um, uh, uh-huh. 100% of what he said. Um, but Pegues did say she never felt she was in danger. Um, she never recognized the threat that was in front of them. Yep, yep. So, so basically the standard to be used to judge this, given over to the jury by the judge, who's really, uh, um, I mean, this is unbelievable, was insane. So in that narrow confines, they 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 ruled against him. Right, and there's case um, law. And again, this if, was... If I can interrupt, there's case law that yep. supports what Ben did. Graham versus Connor, like I stated, um, in the language of that case, it says the officer does not have to wait for the beat of the weapon to be pointed at them to use force against that um, action. Um, there's also case law... Montu versus Carr and Brzezinski versus Palm Beach Sheriff's Office. In those cases, it talks about how um, it was an it was officer involved shooting and how you have to view it from the officer's point of view that used the force. So it doesn't matter if another yeah. officer on scene didn't feel threatened. If the exactly. officer on scene who used the force was threatened and felt like he was threatened, you have to look at it through his point of view. Yep not through the other officers. Unless you prima facie have evidence that the guy woke up in the day and just tried to be like a regular run-of-the-mill murderer, but if he's called onto the scene, it's clear what was going on there, and he felt that was his zone, that he didn't drop the weapon. Some people have a different line. It's all you know, a split-second decision. Right. Whatever it would be, it would not be felony murder. It would not be manslaughter. You know, Again, at best, it would be a question of your job, civil case, which again, I think the evidence you have from what I can see is, you know, certainly he did the right thing, but even if you were wrong, even if they were right on the fact pattern, it wouldn't be murder if this was judged correctly, but not only was it judged that way, but here's um, two more things I want to get to, and by the way, folks, as you're listening, um, they're being backed by the Pipe Hitter Foundation, P-I-P-E-H-I-T-T-E-R, they're the ones who back these uh, law enforcement officers who get prosecuted in these situations, go to pipehitterfoundation.org and then just put in Ben Darby and you'll find his crowdsourcing page. Um, you know, the city the city backed him and, and, and actually paid for the, the trial. They paid for the defense. That's how much they supported him, but not the appeal. The you know, appeal's, you know, running over $100,000 or go to standwithdarby.com. Also, any of you who live in Alabama, I don't care who it is, if it's a county official, state legislator, even a Republican Party state official that you work with, raise awareness to this, demand that there's action, and ultimately, it's Attorney General Steve Marshall. He has been on the show a number of times. Um, it's a good guy. Um, this needs to be overturned immediately. This Every day that this person is in jail is a travesty. He's been in there for 13 months with, you know, just, I mean, your run-of-the-mill, you know, violent criminals, uh, which in itself is a big problem. But um, just back to this, one more level of this that is so insane. Okay, so they convict him. But typically when you have a case like this, this is where sentencing matters, where the judge looks at the totality of circumstances and, you know, you would – if there was a certain guidance, 
you would go on the lower side, not the higher right. side. Describe what happened there and how in the world we got to 25 years. Yeah, so uh, Ben had to go through a pre-sentencing um, packet, basically, and it rated him of what kind of uh, level risk he was as an offender. And he he qualified as a low-risk offender because he has no history. He, I think he has a speeding ticket on his record, and that's it. Like, he's not a criminal, like they're putting him out to be. And so... Um, from the the time of he was convicted to sentencing, we had about three, three and a half months and we were able to gather 72 character witness letters from all types of people that knew Ben, people from his uh, school days, from college, um, professors, church members, people he worked with from HPD, people he worked with from other jobs, um, employers, um, all types of people. And they all wrote about how Ben's not a bad guy. He's not a criminal. He's pleased to to ask the judge, please give him a lenient sentence. Um, All that is supposed to be taken into consideration at sentencing. For the charge of murder, the minimum amount of time is 20 years. It's 20 to life. If you get just 20 years, meaning not 20 years in a day, but just 20 years, you're eligible for an appeal bond, meaning that you can be out on bond. You don't have to be in, in custody during your appeal. You can be at home. Uh, mm. 20 years in a day or longer, you're stuck in prison until your appeal comes back. And again, I want to remind everyone listening, originally, fire him and we won't charge him. Take this plea deal. Nope. That, that's a huge yeah, deal. It's huge. I forgot to mention that. But, meaning, meaning, if if it's... See, you can't bridge that divide. It's too wide. If they believe this is a 25-year dude, how could you have offered him zero? Right? You, you, could, you could say it's, eh, you kind of did a little wrong here. But you're talking about basically the level of felony murder, and you're going to offer zero jail time. Something doesn't add up right. here. Something doesn't right. add up. So fire him. We won't charge him. Take this plea deal, no custody time, five years probation. We go to sentencing. The prosecution gets up and says, Judge, we recommend a minimum of 25 years, but we're on board if you want to go for more. That's a direct quote. We're on board for more than 25 if you're good with it, Judge. Judge takes notes the entire time the prosecution is speaking. Um, For sentencing, I was allowed to be present, thankfully. And I was allowed to testify for my husband. So myself, our pastor, um, his father, uh, a co-worker of his, and a childhood friend that they've been friends forever, basically, we all testified asking the judge, please be lenient with his sentencing. He's not a criminal. He has no record. Quite frankly, he didn't commit murder, but we're here now. So please give us a lenient sentence. The entire time, and I I can say this personally, again, because I testified, and I also asked every person who testified with me, we got sworn in, the judge swore us in, made eye contact with us. As soon as we sat down to give our case, she didn't pay attention. She wouldn't look at me. She didn't acknowledge that I was speaking. She was looking off up into the ceiling, off into the corners of the room, like I was wasting her time. She, We all get done testifying for Ben. Ben goes up, asks for leniency to the judge. She treats him the same way. 
He gets done. Um, our lawyers close with their statement. She asks for a few minutes. We patiently wait. And she says 25 years. The bailiff comes over, takes him into custody. I'm able to hug him and kiss him. And I tell him, babe, I'm going to see you soon. We're going to get through this. And he said, Keelan, stay strong. We'll make it. We're going to make it through this. I'll be home soon. And I went nine months without seeing him. He went to nine, nine months. months with that because of COVID, of because course. Of COVID. COVID, meaning, yeah, the bad guys got let out because yeah. of COVID. The good guys are in, and then you can't visit them. They they swing it the other way again. Perfect evil. Um, and we're we're pretty much out of time. Uh, what's the judge's name again? Her name is Donna Pate. If I can say this really quick, we are we are appealing this. We do have a hearing on November 10th in Birmingham at Sanford University. The judges at the Criminal Court of Appeals want to hear why it was a closed courtroom, which is a constitutional violation of his rights, and why he was not viewed as a reasonable police officer, which, again, is a constitutional issue stemming from Graham versus Connor. So they're yeah. going to hear that on November 10th. Hopefully we'll have a quick answer from them. It probably won't come back, though, until the beginning of the year. And then that'll go forward as to if we get a new trial if they completely render him innocent and we're done, which is what we're praying for, um, yeah. or if they decide to kick it to the Supreme Court. But this is ultimately in Steve Marshall's hands and these judges to do the right thing. Steve Marshall, Attorney General, yeah. I mean, hopefully he'll do the right thing. And again, Donna Pate, P-A-T-E, is that judge there. So those of you who are in um, Madison County, uh, just understand, I'm, I'm assuming she is elected. Yeah. And that's definitely something to keep in mind. And again, I, I just want to, you know, tell the audience here, you know, when you have, I have certain principles for broad policy. When you deal with an individual criminal case, you will, you have to know the details. So I don't necessarily blindly, you know, accept one fact pattern. But but what bothers me here is even if I if if I don't believe a single thing Keelan is telling me, and I just look at what's out there, and you believe the worst case scenario, it doesn't make any sense how you arrive at 25 years. And to me, this is part of a broader message that is being sent and it's very deliberate and you know Akil and I'm speaking for myself here uh you don't have to agree with it and uh affirm it but this this culture of Karen cops and and I don't just mean necessarily if it's a female cop it could be a male one too but it's the same way we talk about this with the military they want people in power that only work in concert with the spirit of the age, meaning you're extremely weak when you need to be aggressive, and you're aggressive where it requires mercy, if you know what I mean. Perfectly inverted, perfectly, perfectly inverted, just like we started the show out um, with this state judge in Massachusetts who allowed a criminal alien sex offender to uh, uh, evade arrest by ICE, and now DOJ under Biden threw out the charges. That's what they want, okay? It's not a matter of, okay, we're like Singapore. We're going to be really harsh. Or like we're Afghanistan where it's just there's, there's no law enforcement. It's anarcho-tyranny. Anarchy for when they want it and tyranny for when they want it. And they'll use the same tools, same, same tools that they use to push the anarchy. They'll turn that around and that will be tyranny against those who they view as a threat to this kind of spirit of the age, the type of, so it's not just that, oh, they're against the police and we're for the police. Oh, they're for the police, all right. They want a specific type of police officer um, that that will wrestle you to the ground for not wearing a mask, 
but you know in a, in a in a situation with with a weapon you know they'll kind of stand down that's exactly what they want uh Keelan, any any parting thoughts before we sew up here i just want to thank everyone for uh supporting us the support we've had so far has been astounding like you said um the pipe hitter foundation has been a big source of um help for us people can go to pipehitterfoundation.org uh to have to know more about us as well as standwithdarby.com um, and also, the National Fraternal Order of Police is back then. So if the police department yes. and the mayor and the city and the FOP, you know, all major, those are major people. If they're all backing him in today's state of affairs, if the cop did wrong, everyone's hands off. But these guys are all backing him. So there must be a reason why. They're not going to openly back a yep. criminal. So um, we're excited for And these- it underscores... Yeah. I would just say it underscores the importance of of prosecution elections, DA elections, judge elections, and uh, you know sheriff elections. Again, so where could people go to help? Pipehitterfoundation.org and standwithdarby.com. And then we're also on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter with the uh, with the handle of standwithdarby. StandWithDarby.com. Again, Keelan, thanks for joining us, sharing your story in long form, as we always do. Not a drive-by, but really cover every angle we can. Um, the next time I have you back, I hope to hear good news. But again, folks, our, our Alabama Minutemen, now is the time to stand. Um, now is the time to get involved. We'll update you on this case, and we are about done for the week. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.